At KPMG, we make the difference. It's not just something we say. It's what we do. Our professionals believe in the value of collaboration and the power of technology. We work closely with clients to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity, develop bold solutions that innovate industries, and create better outcomes driven by data. Brighter insights, bolder solutions, better outcomes. It's how our people make the difference, driving growth and value for our clients. KPMG, make the difference. Tonight on The Readout. I remember looking at Mark and I said, Mark, you can't possibly think we're going to pull this off. Like, that call was crazy. And he looked at me and just started shaking his head. And he was like, no, Cass, you know, he knows it's over. He knows he lost. But we're going to keep trying. There's some good options out there still. We're going to keep trying. Cassidy Hutchinson talking about Trump's White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. And tonight there is blockbuster new reporting that Meadows has been granted immunity to testify under oath about Trump's efforts to overturn the election. Also tonight, a tearful Jenna Ellis apologizes for her role in the Georgia election interference RICO crimes, agreeing to tell prosecutors and a jury all that she knows about the Trump gang's illegal activities. Plus, a third Republican speaker designate went down the drain today, and the search has begun for a fourth, which is not a joke anymore. It's a disgrace. But we begin tonight with breaking news, a potentially explosive development in Jack Smith's federal case against Donald Trump and his attempt to overturn the 2020 election. ABC News is reporting that Mark Meadows, Trump's White House chief of staff, was granted immunity by the special counsel in exchange for his testimony under oath before a grand jury. ABC reports that according to sources familiar with the matter, Meadows has spoken with Smith's team at least three times this year and reportedly told them that he had warned the former president about his election lies. ABC reports, quote, the sources said Meadows informed Smith's team that he repeatedly told Trump in the weeks after the 2020 presidential election that the allegations of significant voting fraud coming to them were baseless a striking break from Trump's prolific rhetoric regarding the election. According to the sources, Meadows also told the federal investigators that Trump was being dishonest with the public when he first claimed to have won the election only hours after polls closed on November 3rd, 2020, before final results were even in. Obviously, we didn't win, a source quoted Meadows as telling Smith's team in hindsight. NBC News has not confirmed this reporting, but this testimony from Meadows, one of the people closest to Trump at the time, would be critical evidence in Smith's case and his ability to establish proof beyond a doubt that Trump knew he lost and tried to overturn a Democratic election anyway. I'm joined now by Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff of California. Uh, This seems to me, uh, Congressman Schiff, to be the big one. Um, because Mark Meadows was the closest person to Trump um, and in helping him overturn the election. Your take on this news from ABC. Well, I think it is very big news. Uh, In a way, it's not surprising. Uh, People never expected Mark Meadows to be a Steve Bannon, you know, gleefully riding into jail on behalf of Donald Trump. Uh, That is not Mark Meadows. Uh, He never signed up to go to jail. Uh, He was, you know, carrying out uh, Donald Trump's uh, dirty work every day. But uh, but self-preservation has kicked in uh, and it appears that he is cooperating. Uh, You know, the challenge with him 
is he's written a book which was touting all the Trump lies. Uh, he's told a lot of the Trump lies himself, so he is not a perfect witness by any means. But nevertheless, uh, you know, having him be able to confirm conversations, uh, having him be able to share first information, firsthand information about what Donald Trump knew and saw, uh, any acknowledgement of his loss of the election privately while Trump was out publicly telling the big lie, all of that is still going to be very useful for prosecutors. Uh, it is. Uh, you mentioned the book, and he is now uh, allegedly, at least according to ABC's reporting, admitted that he doesn't even believe the stuff in his book. In terms of, uh, uh, you know, his usefulness to prosecutors, you did mention the book. The fact that he is now saying that he published a book, presumably took an advance and payment from the publisher, and now says and is telling investigators he doesn't even believe what's in the book. How does that uh, taint or impact him as a witness? It'll certainly impact his credibility. You can imagine if he were called as a witness by Jack Smith to testify about what Trump did and said, he would be impeached with his own words in his book, uh, which is why you're going to need corroboration for what Meadows is saying, other means of proof. Still useful, still important. Prosecutors will make the case, as they often do in organized crime cases, that crooks surround themselves with other crooks. Uh, and you're going to have to rely on, uh, you know, imperfect witnesses to tell the story. But, you know, for someone that close to Trump in all the meetings uh, to essentially have flipped and be willing to talk uh, is significant. I do think more valuable witnesses are people like Cipollone, uh, the White House counsel and others that don't have quite as strong a taint as Mark Meadows. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, this is an important development. You add to it these other lawyers surrounding Trump, the Sidney Powells, the Jenna Ellis's, the Chesbros and others. Uh, and, you know, the wall start closing in on Donald Trump. Yeah, indeed. And of course, Jenna Ellis uh, now also taking a plea. Let me let you respond to that, because now you do have somebody who was in supposedly this high level team of the strike force, they called themselves. Now, two out of the three of the members of the supposed strike force, Signe Powell and Jenna Ellis, have pleaded guilty for Donald Trump. This does seem pretty dire. Uh, it does. You know, these are basically I think they were referred to by, you know, the White House counsel lawyers as the clown car lawyers. Uh, you know, the team there was team normal and then there was team clown car. Uh, these were members of the clown car, along with Giuliani. Uh, I think both Donald Trump needs to be worried about them uh, providing state's evidence. Uh, but also Rudy Giuliani needs to be concerned. Uh, these were a couple of his right hand people. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's all cumulative. You can use them to corroborate documentary evidence. Uh, you can use them to set the time and place of other meetings. Uh, they'll provide insights you can't get from others. So it's just adding the body of evidence. And for those who wondered, why is the Fulton County DA indicting 19 people in the same indictment? You can't possibly try a case with 19 people. Well, you can't. She doesn't have to anymore. Uh, every day, every week, mm -hmm. more people are pleading guilty. And they're going to be taken out of the trial uh, and be added to the stable of witnesses. Absolutely. Let me read a little bit of this reporting, ABC, uh, on whether Trump acknowledged any loss. This is important to his defense. Uh, while speaking with investigators, Meadows was specifically asked if Trump ever acknowledged him that he lost the election. Meadows told investigators he never heard Trump say that, according to sources. What do you make of that? 
Well, I think, uh, you know, in that uh, reporting as well, uh, there is an acknowledgement by Trump when the Supreme Court rules against him. Well, well, that's it. I'm done. Uh, But he wasn't done. Uh, And he went on to challenge the election in other ways. Uh, And this is what you get with Mark Meadows. Uh, You're going to get kind of a little bit on this side, a little bit on that side. Uh, That is, you know, sort of how he conducted affairs in the White House telling each different group that appeared what they wanted to hear. And I think we're seeing more of this in the reporting about his testimony before the grand jury. Uh, but it's very characteristic of who he is. Uh, and that is, you know, quite chameleon-like, which does make him challenging as a witness, not without value, potentially with significant value, but sure. uh, certainly not uh, problem-free either. As you just mentioned, I've uh, heard the ABC when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on December 11, 2020, denying the final court challenge, Trump told Meadows something to the effect of that's it, that's the end. Um, there's also this reporting from ABC that uh, Meadows has allegedly told investigators that Trump seemed to grow increasingly concerned as he learned about what was transpiring at the Capitol and was visibly shaken when he heard that someone had been shot there. Your thoughts on that? Well, that's that's a new insight uh, that we haven't heard. We have certainly seen in her testimony about how cavalierly he was watching these events unfold uh, in the dining room, uh, you know, calmly taking this in on the television uh, while people kept coming in and pleading with him to do something. And, you know, some of the most powerful testimony was that uh, when Meadows was being pushed uh, to get the president to do something, to call it off, uh, there was the response, well, you know, you've heard what he said, uh, essentially, where's the effect of uh, he thinks Pence deserves it. Uh, and uh, and so being able to get Meadows on the record, we have, you know, this conversation secondhand from others, uh, being able to ask Meadows about that conversation and others will be really useful to prosecutors. Uh, let me play uh, Cassie Hutchinson, who was just on with uh, uh, my colleague uh, Ari Melber just a little while ago. This is what she had to say and her initial reaction to Meadows' uh, parent cooperation. In my experience, Mark was sort of all over the board in, on, in some ways. You know, he would privately admit to me sometimes that the election, that we had lost the election, or sometimes he would privately admit to me that Trump had said that we had lost the election. But Mark also was a key player in bringing in characters like Sidney Powell and like Jenna Ellis. In my experience, he, again, he would at times acknowledge what he, what I have read in the ABC report. I mean, the all over the place, uh, you know, sort of status of Mark Meadows even came out in the January 6th hearings where he's sort of catatonic when uh, the violence is happening and says, as you said, you know, he doesn't want to do anything. Trump doesn't want to do anything and that he thought Pence deserved it. Cassidy Hutchinson also says in her new book that Mark Meadows burned so many papers after the 2020 election that it left his office smoky and even prompted his wife to complain that his suits smelled like a bonfire. That, to me, sounds incredibly damning. Um, Getting an immunity deal when you might have been burning evidence (laughs) seems odd to me. Do, do, Do you think that at some point he will be prosecuted either by Georgia or by someone else? Uh, you know, I really can't say. I really don't know uh, whether I mean, he, he is will, in Georgia. Sorry, you know, I sort of say. chameleon, chameleon-like uh, uh, evade prosecution by cutting deals. Um, that that testimony from Cassidy, you know, as the former chair of the Intel Committee, was alarming to me at the time. It's alarming to me today. We were really never able to get to the bottom of what he was destroying. 
Uh, and I would hope that as a part of his cooperation, we get new insights on that. He might, you know, have, you know, important value, for example, in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. He might be able to shed light on how some of those documents got there his conversations with the president or warnings that were made to him and the president. Um, but uh, for the sake of national security, I hope that uh, any deal would, would also require him to be truthful about that. Um, final you know, point on that is would it make sense to have a deal with somebody involved in that kind of conduct really depends on the value of their testimony. Uh, and presumably, if Smith gave Meadows immunity, it was either because it would be difficult to prosecute him or because the value of what he was getting was so significant, it outweighed the benefit of bringing him to justice. Yeah. And of course, I'm, you know, I misspoke. Of course, he is already being prosecuted in Georgia, so he is on the hook for that. Uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you very much. Up next, former Trump lawyer Jenna Ellis learns the high cost of doing Trump's bidding. As Michael Cohen can tell you, it never ends well. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Today was another chapter in the cautionary tale of what happens when people with respectable careers decide to hitch their wagons to Donald Trump. First in New York today, Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, testified in Trump's civil fraud trial. Trump was in the courtroom the first time the two have come face to face in five years. Cohen epitomizes the cautionary tale. He once said that he would take a bullet for Trump. And what did that get him? Time behind bars to say nothing of the death threats for cooperating with authorities. But of course, Cohen is hardly alone. The list of former Trump lawyers with rap sheets and court dates is a mile long at this point. In a Georgia courtroom today, one of Trump's former campaign attorneys, Jenna Ellis, pleaded guilty in the state's 2020 election interference RICO case. She becomes the fourth Georgia co-defendant to take a deal and the third Trump lawyer to do so, following Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheeseborough. In return for pleading guilty to one count of aiding and abetting false statements and writings, Ellis will serve five years probation, pay a $5,000 fine, do 100 hours of community service, write an apology letter to the people of Georgia, and most notably, cooperate fully with prosecutors. And that is likely where prosecutors see Ellis's value, because she was an insider. She was part of Trump's campaign legal team, both before and after the election, and can speak to the conversations that took place. She was there when Rudy Giuliani, she was there with Rudy Giuliani at that infamous press conference following the 2020 election, where hair dye was dripping down his face faster than they could spout out their wild, fact-free claims about widespread voter fraud. She traveled with Giuliani to contested states to urge lawmakers to reject their own state's votes. 
She also took it upon herself to write multiple memos claiming that Vice President Mike Pence had every right to refuse to count the electoral votes from certain states. And she was a regular on cable news, pushing the big lie and other conspiracy theories surrounding the election, none of which were true, and she knew it. She admitted that earlier this year when she was censured by the Colorado State Bar. She admitted it again today and tried to claim that it was she who had been duped. I relied on others, including lawyers with many more years of experience than I, to provide me with true and reliable information. What I did not do, but should have done, Your Honor, was to make sure that the facts the other lawyers alleged to be true were in fact true. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. Joining me now, Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and professor at the University of Michigan Law School, and Charles Coleman, Jr., former Brooklyn prosecutor. Thank you both for being here, Barb. uh, Let's start with the attempt by Jenna Ellis to essentially say she was listening to higher-level lawyers. Jenna Ellis was a member of what they called the elite strike force. Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, and Rudy Giuliani. She presented herself as a constitutional scholar, which is how she would get booked on Fox and other right-wing media, presenting herself as an expert. Can she now claim to be essentially someone who was duped? Well, I, I suppose anyone can claim that. My, my guess is in the recorded proffer that she provided to prosecutors, she provided a more fulsome admission of her own guilt and information that she can share with the prosecution team and to testify to at a trial. Uh, she got a good deal. She's pleading guilty to a felony, uh, but no prison time. And so I imagine that prosecutors first listened to that proffered testimony and then assessed its value before allowing her to plead guilty to this deal. And so uh, I imagine that she has information about Rudy Giuliani, maybe others on the team. Uh, and one thing that makes her a little different from Sidney Powell, who Trump himself referred to as, quote, crazy, you know, Jenna Ellis doesn't have that same baggage. And so she might be a, a more, um, uh, perhaps less well-known, but maybe even more valuable cooperator than some of the others. Uh, We know, Charles, that she had been complaining of late that her legal bills were mounting and not being paid for uh, by Donald Trump. So she did seem to be slipping. I don't think it's super shocking that she would uh, she would eventually plead out. Um, But let's talk about the layers of falsehoods that that went into her plea deal. Um, Credibility. This is Washington Post. Credibility wasn't the goal. Utility was. So lots of useful false things were offered up, having the effect of making other false things look useful and making those original false things more useful still. Layers upon layers of nonsense, a blizzard in a snow globe held in Donald Trump's hand. Um, She's claiming that she, you know, didn't know any better. She was just listening to other people. But she was the one writing memos saying what the vice president of the United States could legally do, which were also crimes. Uh, Your thoughts on her value as a cooperating witness? Well, Joy, in response to what you were just talking about, I think the two words that we all need to be mindful of are due diligence. And as an attorney, as someone who's advising her, uh, her client in that position, she has a responsibility to make due diligence. And the fact that she didn't and she acknowledges that she didn't pretty much does not give her any cover or leaves her with no cover around the notion that you tried to move forward with this lie. You knew or should have known that it was a lie and you did so anyway. And so on those grounds, 
she's not going to have much sympathy when it comes to that. But on a larger scale, to your question, Joy, the issue that she has is the same issue that everyone in this case, as well as the other case, the civil case you referred to with Michael Cohen has, which is you've been so close to a criminal for so long that you yourself have also been now indicted or at some point done jail time. And it brings the question of your credibility as a witness into the st- onto the stand or onto a prosecutor's mind. Now, as a former prosecutor, I can tell you we're used to working with witnesses who aren't perfect. We're used to working with witnesses who aren't squeaky clean. But as a defense attorney, what they're going to try to do as best as possible is to say basically, hey, aren't you trying to throw Donald Trump under the bus to save yourself? Aren't you saying something different now than what you said before, only because you were in, uh, unda- under danger of going to jail? And in the minds of a jury, that may be persuasive. So that is something that prosecutors are going to have to deal with, albeit something that we see normally, but it is something that's going to be a challenge. And, you know, Barb, to, to take that point up, uh, with Michael Cohen, to switch to that case for just a moment, he testified today, you know, the answer that he would give is, well, here are the documents, right? I mean, the prosecutors aren't just taking the word of the person for it. They also have to provide documentary evidence of it. Uh, we now have learned that Mark Meadows has gotten an immunity, at least per ABC News, this is not NBC News confirmed reporting, it's ABC News reporting, that Mark Meadows has actually taken uh, and Im- gotten an immunity deal and has started talking. Uh, he is somebody who is told, allegedly, according to ABC, uh, that he doesn't even believe the stuff in his own book, which repeated the big lie. So he is one of those people who's written and taken money to write a book saying one thing and is now telling prosecutors some something else. But isn't he also going to have to document everything he's telling prosecutors to keep that deal? Yes, absolutely. So prosecutors want to do two things, as Charles said. One is uh, to to satisfy themselves that the witness is telling the truth. They ethically cannot sponsor untruthful testimony. And so to do that, you look for corroboration. What matches up with what you're hearing from other witnesses? What documents do we have that can support or refute what the witness is saying? And then the other thing they have to do is feel confident that this person can be a persuasive witness at trial. No doubt he will be attacked on cross-examination in the ways that Charles suggests, undermining his credibility and suggesting that he is just saying what the prosecution wants him to say so that he can get a good deal. And so the way prosecutors rebut that is to say things like, you know, this isn't a person we chose to spend time with. This is a person Donald Trump chose to spend time with. And everything that he has said here today in court is supported by documents or other witnesses. And so, you know, the value of someone like this is having that insider who can maybe explain some of the documents and what they mean or serve as a narrator and confirm that the prosecution's theory is the right one. And so they're not going to just believe him on his word. They're going to ensure that all of this is, as you say, Joy, corroborated by other evidence. Yeah. And if you go back to the Michael Cohen case, everything that he said, Tish James just used to win uh, a big chunk of the case that she has against Donald Trump. So, so far, what he's saying is checking out. Um, To come back to you for a second, uh, Charles Coleman Jr., uh, Mark Meadows' lawyer has released a statement calling ABC's uh, reporting, ABC News reporting, largely inaccurate. Now, that doesn't mean that that he's refuting that he has a deal. Uh, I I am old enough to remember you telling me, uh, sir, that the one person you'd want to flip if you were involved in this case is him. Um, If you're Fonnie Willis and you're reading that ABC reporting, how are you looking at your dealings with the person you're prosecuting your RICO case, namely Mark Meadows? Well, it is going to make me think 
and try to find out as much of the contours as possible as to whether he is cooperating and to what extent and what information he's providing. I mean, Mark Meadows is not going to get an across the board deal with respect to all of the prosecutions that he's facing. And so I'm going to move forward with the case that I have. But I do want to try to get as much information if I am able to from prosecutors on the federal level to find out what type of information they're giving, uh, if any of that information is useful to me. And at the end of the day, it's going to be Mark Meadows decision uh, if he is willing to cooperate with prosecutors in, in Georgia and whether Fannie Willis is going to put something on the table that's attractive to him. So it's something that is going to be interesting to me that I'm going to watch. But ultimately, it's not going to stop me from moving forward with what it is I'm supposed to do, which is prosecute him for the crimes I believe he's guilty of. Uh, thank you, Barbara McQuaid and Charles Coleman, Jr. Thank you both. Up next on The Readout. Turns out the third time was not the charm for House Republicans. Tom Emmer dropped out of the speaker race just hours after being nominated. Disgracefully, they are back to square one. Stay right there. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. House Republicans met today to choose their third speaker designate in three weeks. Here's a look at how that started. Sean, the job is spoken. Time for you to go. Except after booting six candidates off the island, the Republican version of Survivor turned full on Lord of the Flies real fast. Now that their ability to govern themselves has devolved into full-blown anarchy, in a private vote, the tribe chose Majority Whip Tom Emmer of Minnesota as Speaker-designate number three. At least 26 members held out on Emmer. Some expressed concern over Emmer's voting record on things like certifying the 2020 election, Ukraine, and a slew of other reasons. I can't go along with putting one of the most moderate members of the entire Republican conference in the speaker's chair. That, that betrays the conservative values that I came here to fight for. How concerned are you about his vote on same-sex marriage? Uh, very concerned. Could you vote against him? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Would you, are you gonna, is there any way you would vote for him? Uh, no. People are talking. He's had some issues uh, with the former president. I think some of the comments that he's made in the past, uh, I'm not going to get specific, but I think it's causing him some problems. Ooh, just way too too moderate and normal. Uh, his problems with the former president got worse uh, when Donald Trump, who less than 24 hours earlier said he was staying out of the speaker debacle, shanked Emmer on his fake Twitter. Trump said Emmer hadn't defended him enough, was totally out of touch with Republican voters, and that voting for a, quote, globalist rhino would be a tragedy. With his shot at 217, basically DOA at that point. Late today, Emmer abruptly dropped his bid. Clearly, the third time's not the charm. And Republicans are back to square one. Joining me now is NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent Ali Vitale and Tim Miller, writer at large at The Bulwark and an MSNBC political analyst. Oh, Ali, 
What <laughs> in the fresh hell is going on in that building behind you? I have not left this hallway all day, Joy. I think you the live there now. Mood here it's where you live is exactly your question. I live here. Forward my mail. Someone go. Someone else go pay my mortgage because we're all installed here, and they're staying for the rest of the night. Can I just add, Joy? They're supposed to vote in about thirty minutes for another balloting round to find another speaker designate because Emmer, as you pointed out only lasted in that role for about three hours before he pulled himself out of contention. So this is where we stand. And I have spent some time reporting over the course of the last few minutes with our colleague Scott Wong that there is now a push being floated by former Speaker McCarthy to be reinstalled as Speaker McCarthy alongside Jim Jordan as the assistant speaker. Two points to make here, and I do hear your laughter. Two points to make here. The first is one source who was... <laughs> I can't even continue with you. <laughs> Let me finish. One source who was briefed on this idea told me that it would work like Pelosi and Catherine Clark, speaker and assistant speaker. So there is technically a precedent for this, but there is also very much an office reference here about Dwight being the assistant to the regional manager, and I think that's probably more apt because, as your laughter suggests... This is probably not going to happen, but it's being floated, and we just report the we just report the news here, Joy. <laughs> Tim, you want to be speaker? I mean, at this point, uh, they I, just need I somebody was, to do the job. You refer to me as speaker designate. Uh, I was <laughs> the title that I'm going for going forward. Uh, everybody gets to be speaker designate. It is a title without a job, apparently, and so why not me? I mean. <laughs> But I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to me to laugh at your great reporting. But Tim, so you mean so 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 this is what we're doing? Kevin McCarthy said, "I have a bright idea. Me, me. I'll be speaker. It's the thing I've always wanted. Anyway, just give it back to me. Like that's it. Is this ever going to end? Can Allie go home at some point? I don't think Allie can go home, and then she might end up being speaker designate um, as well at some point. Uh, A lot of people getting the title. Uh, my Kevin, uh, why not my Kevin? I mean, he's gotten the most votes so far. I, I think, uh, you know, he didn't have 20, 217, but he had more votes than Scalise and more votes than Jordan and more votes than Emmer. So, uh, uh, you know, maybe they should go back to my Kevin. I, here's the problem, uh, Joy and, and Ali, uh, in seriousness, like the, the thing is the MAGA wing has control over this here. And, and, and these guys might not want to believe that. And maybe I think they're hoping that one day that the MAGA weirdo caucus was going to wake up and they're just going to be like, oh, fine, we'll go with Tom Emmer. Just the same thing as Kevin McCarthy. But why would they do that? They have the, the Republican voters are with the arsonists. You know, if this is a dumpster fire uh, that has been started by Matt Gates, like the Republican voters are with the people lighting the fire in the dumpster. And, and so... Uh, you know, and, until those people agree on someone, I, I guess I don't understand why they keep voting. Like, they really should just right. get the 30 craziest members together and say, <laughs> you guys give us a list of who you would accept. Right. And then and then we can decide from that list. Uh, that would be my advice on how to move forward. Or, and I feel like it's Groundhog Day. I've been saying this on MSNBC for three weeks. Or all it takes is five of them to just walk down the hall. And any one of those five could be the speaker. And I don't understand at this point why not one of them want to see a see a portrait of themselves. Don Bacon, you know, Kay Granger, get your portrait. 
All you got to do yes. is knock on Hakeem Jeffries' door and bring four <laughs> of your friends with you, maybe three of your friends, depending on who shows up to vote on a given day. So uh, that could happen, but unfortunately, it doesn't seem like anybody wants to do that. Well, Ali, let's go back to you, since you do live there, and so you know everybody there. Are there five Republicans, or are Republicans behind the scenes having that conversation? Because it seems to me that the only people who can get anywhere have to have denied the election. So that's number one, right? You have to have denied the election. Yeah. Are there some of the normies left who are talking about maybe just cutting a deal with Democrats and getting a speaker in place. It would still be a Republican, likely still very conservative, more conservative than most Democrats would like, but at least there'd be someone doing the job. So I entertained some McCarthy fan fiction for you, and although it was well-reported by my colleague and Scott Wong and I, I do think it's extremely far-fetched. I will now entertain some consensus government fan fiction for you and your audience, which is that... In theory, that's very logical to have someone cross party lines and go to Hakeem Jeffries' door and say, hey, let's do something so that this place just works again. But I don't think that's going to happen. I almost think that when we apply too much logic to this scenario, it's where it gets really frustrating and where it doesn't work anymore. Because there is no logic that seems to be functioning behind this, Joy and Tim. I think we're just squarely in a place where Republicans only want to do this by themselves. Even the most frustrated and so-called moderate among them are still not willing to cross party lines. And Democrats, even last week, continued to say, Catherine Clark said on the floor when she was nominating Hakeem Jeffries yet again, she said, take yes for an answer. Democrats are willing to empower Speaker Pro Tem McHenry. That idea seemed to have died on the vine among Republicans. But there were Democrats that I talked to who were actually very behind it and would have happily, both politically at home and pragmatically here in Washington, happily backed that as an idea. But within this Republican conference, it again seems dead on arrival. And so, yeah, if we're entertaining fanfic, sure, there's a world yeah. in which that happens. But I just don't really see it here. Uh, last word to you on this, Tim, because how does this end? I mean, it clearly we're getting close to a government shutdown. It seems that there is a part of the caucus that actually wants it this way. They don't want there to be a House of Representatives that functions, right? So they can't fund anything and spend anything. Yeah. How does this end? Yeah, I, the three ways that I see it ending just really fast. One is the most normal Republicans just go along with somebody that's crazy, but not quite as crazy as Jim Jordan. I could see them folding. They folded before uh, to Donald Trump. So why wouldn't they? Uh, the other one is that they br actually bring something to the floor that the Democrats could vote for. I, I think that might have actually worked for Tom Emmer, which is why they didn't want to bring him to Emmer. the floor. Enough Democrats might yeah. have voted for him had they actually mm -hmm. brought it to the floor. Um, and uh, the other thing is just the shutdown happening and eventually pressure. But that's, you know three weeks, another three weeks from now. But I like if you get there, I think then maybe enough pressure happens that something cracks. I, I don't maybe there's another magical way I don't see. But that, that seems to be it to me. Well, uh, option four is literally Lord of the Flies. Google that and see how that went. <laughs> Ali Vitali and Tim Miller. God bless us, everyone. Thank you both. Uh, up next, for the first time, we are learning about what it was like for the freed hostages in captivity in Gaza as the U.S. advises Israel to delay carrying out a ground invasion. A day after her release, freed Israeli hostage Yosheved Lifshitz described her kidnapping by Hamas militants as hell. Here she is at a hospital in Tel Aviv alongside her daughter, who provided translation into English. 
My mom is saying that she was taken on the back of a motorbike with her body, uh, with her legs on one side and her head on another side. That she was taken through the plowed fields with a man in front on one side and a man behind her. And that while she was do being taken, she was hit by uh, sticks by Shabab. Shabab. Yeah, Shabab pe people. Until they reached the tunnels, there they walked for a few kilometers on the wet ground. There are a huge, um, huge um, network of tunnels underneath. It looks like a spider web. Lifshitz was freed along with a second elderly woman, Nurit Cooper, on Monday. Both of their husbands are still being held hostage in Gaza. The situation in Gaza remains dire, with the healthcare system on the verge of collapse. Aid workers will be forced to stop operations tomorrow because they're running out of fuel. The United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, says that more than 400 children in the Gaza Strip are injured or killed every day due to the ongoing Israeli bombing campaign. NBC News reports that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told troops today that the Israeli military is facing the next stage, the latest sign that a ground invasion is imminent. It is an escalation that several Western leaders, including French President Emmanuel Macron, are hoping to prevent. Today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken delivered a forceful defense of Israel, but said that humanitarian pauses must be considered to protect civilians in Gaza. He also had this to say about the need to condemn Hamas's October 7 attack on Israeli civilians, which killed 1,400 people. We have to ask. Indeed, it must be asked. Where is the outrage? Where is the revulsion? Where is the rejection? Where is the explicit condemnation of these horrors? No member of this council, no nation in this entire body could or would tolerate the slaughter of its people. Joining me now is Ambassador Dennis Ross, counselor and distinguished fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, as well as former Middle East envoy and a top peace negotiator in the administrations of George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. Uh, Ambassador Ross, thank you for being here. Let me let you respond to uh, Anthony Blinken, um, because the U.S. did stand alone in um, using its veto at the U.N. Uh, to stop a resolution um, that was calling for some sort of peace, uh, you know, pause for human humanitarian purposes. Um, where do we stand internationally? Because it does feel like a lot of the world is calling for something like a, a deal, a peace deal. Yeah, no, look, I think that, that many internationally are calling for it. And I think what you saw from Secretary Blinken was a sense that the problem with the resolution that was presented was it provided no basis for the Israelis ultimately to carry out self-defense. The idea that I think what uh, Secretary Blinken was trying to uh, emphasize was, where is the condemnation in this resolution of what Hamas did? It did unspeakable things. No one else would tolerate it. And yet, where is the condemnation? How can we have a resolution that, that talks, in a, that provides for a pause, but doesn't provide for the Israelis to provide for self-defense or call out Hamas for what was done? I think the administration would have supported the resolution if there was that kind of balance in it. They found that this was basically not balanced, and they want to remind everybody, yes, what's happening in, in Gaza right now is terrible, 
but also let's not allow our memories to forget just what the horrors were that Hamas visited upon Israelis. And of course, we're reminded every day when we there still are 218 hostages being held. Uh, let me play uh, a little bit uh, of what Martin Fletcher had to say. He, uh, two of his relatives actually were the first two uh, hostages to be released. Uh, he talked about Yoshevet Lifshitz. There's this sort of now famous po- photo of her sort of shaking hands with one of her captors. And this is what he said earlier today uh, on, um, on with Andrea Mitchell. As happy as the family is, as remarkable as that image is, it is exactly what the Israeli government does not want the world to see. They are, for the Israelis, they see this as a, as a PR disaster. The first hostage released to go on camera and say, actually, well, they treated me pretty well, and I get, they gave me my medications. That is not good for Israel's PR machine. But I think we do have to bear one thing in mind. Um, Yochebet's husband is still a hostage in Gaza. And Ms. Lifshitz uh, was also critical um, of her own government. Um, Washington Post reports that she described how unprepared Israel had been for the devastating October 7 attack. The IDF did not take it seriously. We were left to fend for ourselves. She said the lack of knowledge in the IDF and the Shin Bet uh, severely affected us. They seemed uh, unprepared for it. Um, She also did talk about sort of the long series of tunnels um, that she was taken through that was like a spider web, as she described it. Um, What do you make of the, the situation that the Israeli government is in right now. The bombing is creating a humanitarian disaster um, in Gaza. Some of the hostages and their families are very critical of the government, who they want to prioritize getting all the hostages back over bombing Gaza. And yet, it seems that uh, Netanyahu is under some pressure to conduct a very, very violent campaign. Um, what, What do you make of the position that they find themselves in, the government there? Look, there's a there's a duality here, and you have a tension between objectives. Uh, one one objective is clearly get the hostages out, and that's part of the reason I think you've seen a delay uh, in terms of carrying out a ground offensive uh, into Gaza. Another objective is to make sure that Hamas doesn't emerge from this with some kind of ceasefire that leaves their military infrastructure largely intact that leaves their control structure within Gaza largely intact, that allows them to resume and rebuild the way they have after every previous ceasefire. People tend to forget in 2014, there was a conflict that went on for 52 days. Uh, Almost 3,000 Palestinians were killed at the time. There was mass destruction in Gaza. Uh, There were calls to create reconstruction based on demilitarization and preventing materials from going in and being diverted to Hamas. And guess what? It took very little time, ultimately, for Hamas to rebuild the tunnels, which she described as a network of tunnels. Think about all the material that has gone into that. Steel, uh, cement, uh, electric wiring, wood. Uh, You know, this is a this is an enormous undertaking, huge expense. All that could have been used Mm -hmm. to rebuild impoverished, impoverished Gaza above ground. But it wasn't. Because the aim of Hamas continues to be to to fight Mm -hmm. Israel, not to not in a sense to care for their own people. Yeah. What do you mean? And this. I'm so, I'm so sorry, because you you do know the players involved. So exit question to you. What do you make of the criticisms inside of Israel that all that you said is true and that despite that, Bibi Netanyahu and some other members of his government, their strategy has been to uplift Hamas and to keep Hamas in place because it was a way to avoid getting to the real solution to this, which is a two-state solution. Well, I th- I look, I think there's a duality even on that side. 
I think there was, I think Prime Minister Netanyahu's attitude had been, you know, it's better to basically have limited conflicts with Hamas every few years. That's less expensive than going back into Gaza. Others within his coalition, like ministers Smotrich and Ben Gavir, they preferred Hamas to the Palestinian Authority because they looked at the Palestinian Authority as having some appeal as a negotiating partner, whereas no one would view Hamas as being a negotiating partner. Look, I think one of the things we're going to find, there will be a political reckoning in Israel yeah, uh, in, in some time, but there'll also be a debate on the issue of what to do with the Palestinians. That is coming. That you can count on. Well, hopefully, because, yeah, that resolution would actually help, I think, a lot of people live better lives and safer lives. Ambassador Dennis Ross, thank you. We'll be right back. Before we go tonight, be sure to check out the readout blog. Jahan Jones takes Republicans to task for trying to block aid to Gaza. And he warns Democrats about the Arizona Senate candidate, Carrie Lake, the MAGA Svengali who has taken Sidney Powell's place as Trump's favorite conspiracy theorist. And that is tonight's readout. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.